calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. listening to episode 9 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 16, Dunsany Roads Orbital, 2352, April 15. Eventually the long night ended. Francis showed up right on time at 0545 and smiled in sympathy when he saw me. You holding up? he asked. Kinda, I told him. Not as bad as I thought it would be. I got a lot of studying in, I said with a grin. He looked uncomfortable at the mention of study, so I told him, You did me a favor with the bookmark thing, you know? He just raised an eyebrow. If you hadn't set it to spec one, I'd still be slogging through spec three and wouldn't even have considered the kind of leapfrog and rating that I'm doing. I still feel bad, he said. I thought sure you'd have caught the file setting as soon as you brought up the lesson. Hindsight, eh? I sure should have. I'll never make that mistake again, but you are also right about my being distracted. There was a lot going on. I shrugged. Are you ready to take this on? <laughs> no, he said with a grin, but it's my turn. All ops normal, Mr. Gartner, I told him. No maintenance scheduled or performed. You have the watch. I relieve you, Mr. Huang. I have the watch, he said. And... Watch out for the girls this afternoon, he said with a grin. They've got something planned. Laughing, I headed for my bunk and a few stands sleep before I found out what that might be. I'd set my tablet to bit me at 12.30, so I had time for a shower before leaving to see Roubaix. I woke a bit more refreshed than I thought I might be. My body had adapted to the watch cycle pretty well. Something about teaching it to sleep when I needed to sleep and to stay awake when I needed to stay awake. The old ideas of morning and night seemed a trifle artificial in the 24-stand world of watch-standing. When I came out of the sand, Bev, Brill, and Diane were all waiting for me. Normally, that would have been scary enough, but under the circumstances, I almost turned around and walked back in. Look, I said, is this really necessary? The three of them looked at each other and passed some primal communication that I couldn't interpret. Bev said, yes. Don't forget the chip from Brichot, Brill added. And we'll see you in the lock in five ticks, Diane finished. We know where you sleep, Bev warned me as they left. So much for the idea of giving them the slip. I sighed and put on my civvies. Straightening my jacket in the mirror, I grimaced at the guy looking back at me. He didn't seem too pleased with what he saw either. With any luck, I'd have something a bit more presentable to wear when I got back. When I got to the lock, Sean had the duty, and he said, 
Good luck, Kish, very softly as I signed out. I started to ask him what he meant when Brill and Beverly appeared, one on either side of me. Are you coming? Bev asked. Sean shrugged helplessly, and I waved to him as they escorted me off the ship. Brill asked, Do you have the chip? I pulled it out and held it up, right here. As I slipped it back into my pocket, I saw their eyes following it all the way with a kind of hungry reverence. It was then I noticed what they were wearing. Beverly, of course, in her black leathers, but instead of the usual armor plating under it, she was wearing a kind of silky chemise and a pale collar that looked like white next to the midnight black of her leathers and glowing against her darker skin. She wasn't wearing the jacket buckled at the waist either, the way she usually did, but instead left it open all the way down the front so the tail swung free. With her buzz-cut hair, tattoos, and piercings, she looked both fascinating and terrifyingly fierce. Diane, in her own style, was wearing heels and a black suit with an absolutely stunning green silk blouse unbuttoned so far I thought she was in imminent danger of indecent exposure. The collars of both the blouse and the jacket were turned up as if to frame her face, but all they did was accentuate the plunge to the front by extending the V upwards even more. So even when I managed to track up to her face, I couldn't help but be aware of the softness swelling under that silky, silky blouse. When I finally managed to look at Brill, I almost turned and retreated to the ship. If the lock hadn't been already cycling closed, I might have bolted. Brill was awesome. She was wearing a pair of black straight-legged slacks with very pointy shoes. The legs seemed to go about halfway to the overhead before they disappeared into a dark red tailored jacket with an offset row of black buttons. This wasn't a scarlet red of blood, but a richer, almost burgundy color, without the purple overtones. The tailoring on the jacket was impeccable. The fabric hugged every curve, and there were some fascinating curves. Her jacket had a stand-up collar as well, a kind of tab collar that it was at once almost military and almost oriental, but really neither. She wore no blouse under the jacket, or at least none I could see, and it left that long neck, throat, and upper chest exposed in a way that ship suit and tee never would. She didn't have Diane's cleavage, but she didn't suffer one iota from the lack. She'd done something with her hair, too, so that it was a kind of wild, spiky appearance that was totally at odds with the collected and cool brill I was used to. She was smiling in a way that was very disturbing because of the way my body was reacting to it. Wow. That was all I could get out. There didn't seem to be quite enough oxygen on the docking bay, and the stinging cold was not helping my feeling of sudden overload as Bev's body responded to the temperature under that silky chemise. Now that we have your attention, Brill said, arching an eyebrow, shall we go? She turned and led the way while Bev and Diane waited to block my retreat. I took a deep breath and followed Brill to the lift, very aware of how nicely tailored those slacks were and wishing just a little bit that her jacket were a tad shorter. I could hear Beverly and Diane striding along side by side just behind me, and not quite in step but very close to it. At the lift, Brill stopped and held the door open while Diane and Bev ushered me into the car. As I turned and looked out at the closing doors, I could see a half-dozen people staring after us before the metal cut off the view. We'd walked right through a group of them, and I'd never even noticed. Judging from the looks, though, they'd noticed us. The lift stopped on level 11. When the door slid apart, Brill stepped out and strode away without looking back. She didn't need to. I could no more not follow her than a planet would suddenly halt in its orbit. 
I understood the idea of magnetic personality in a whole new way. Besides, I had the impression that Bev and Diane were perfectly prepared and able to carry me should I balk at this point. As we walked down the nicely appointed corridor, the feeling of being completely at the mercy of these three powerful, gorgeous, sexy, brilliant women was almost overpowering. I could barely breathe. It scared the hell out of me, but I also realized just as suddenly that I liked it. It was like riding a roller coaster and there were no seat belts. As we approached the front of the shop, I caught a sight of us as the group reflected in the glass. Brill, the statuesque goddess, striding the deck like some predatory Valkyrie. Diane and Beth, an escort position one step behind and offset left and right. Me in the middle. I didn't feel so much like a prisoner at that point, more like protected. I straightened up then and tried to walk with a bit more confidence. If these magnificent women thought I was worth protecting, then I wanted to at least pretend to be worthy of it. The glimpse was over in a flash as we hit the double doors and Brill sailed through them and into Chez Henri. Chez Henri was not what I thought of when I thought shop, and I realized that I was way out of my league. There wasn't a shop as such, just an entry. There weren't even any mannequins in the entry, just a podium where a woman wearing half-glasses and a tweed suit stood. The setup reminded me of a posh restaurant with her standing there like that behind the podium, doors on either side of her. She even said, Good afternoon, madam. Do you have a reservation? Brill is not easily intimidated, especially not by tweed-suited receptionists. We'd like to see Monsieur Roubaillet, she said with a cool smile. The receptionist was a pro, and she merely smirked. Many people would, madame, but without a reservation, it's quite impossible. Excuse me, I spoke for the first time since leaving the ship, and with what I hoped was considerably more confidence than I felt. We have an introduction from Brachot. I produced the chip and held it up. Impossible. Brachot is in St. Cloud, the woman said dismissively, but she was thrown off by the interruption. And we have just arrived from St. Cloud, as it happens. Brill slid smoothly aside, and I stepped forward. If you'd be so kind as to pass this to Monsieur Roubaillet, we'll wait, I said pleasantly, and handed her the chip. She took it between thumb and finger, as if suspicious of its cleanliness, and turned it so the flowery bee was visible on the casing. She controlled it well, but her eyes flared slightly as it came into her view, and she looked first at me and then at each of the women with a new kind of uncertainty. Of course, monsieur, she said finally with a small nod in my direction. I'll be but a moment. She disappeared through the door on the right, and I looked behind me to see Beverly and Diane arranged so they could watch the entry door while Brill was standing off to the side with a small, satisfied smile. She winked once and gave me the tiniest of nods. I could hear the voices coming from behind the door even before it burst open, and a thin man rushed into the entry with receptionist in tow. Monsieur Huang, he said, looking at me, my name is Henri Roubaillet. Welcome to my shop. How may I help you today? Bonjour, monsieur. As you can see, I need some more suitable clothing, I told him with a smile. Certainly. If you'd step this way, monsieur, he indicated where the receptionist was holding the door open for us, and he swept us into the inner sanctum. I followed him through the door, and Brill, Diane, and Beverly followed me. We passed through into a smallish room with sofas and easy chairs arranged artfully around a coffee table. To be honest, I had no idea what to expect, but it wasn't this. I had yet to see a single garment that wasn't already in use, and I was becoming a bit concerned. Please, have a seat, he said, indicating the chairs. 
Brill nodded to Diane and Bev, who sat together on one sofa while she took one of the side chairs. I followed and took the seat she'd indicated with her eyes. Monsieur Roubaillet stood in attendance at the front of the room, and after a few ticks of pleasantry on the subject of refreshment, began the serious business. So how may I serve you this afternoon, then, monsieur? Brill spoke while I was still trying to figure out what I was doing there. Monsieur Wang needs an outfit, monsieur. We visited Brochot and St. Cloud, but ran out of time before we could decide, and he graciously provided the introduction to you. Monsieur Roubaillet was paying exquisite attention to Brill, but his eyes kept track periodically of Diane and Beverly as well. And do we know what kind of outfit? Formal, evening wear, day wear, he asked. Casual, multipurpose, suitable for business, or dinner with a colleague, she said instantly. Something that fits him. Perhaps a suit, perhaps some other ensemble. She smiled at him and finished with, That's why we have come to you, monsieur. I heard the words, but I knew I didn't understand the message that Brill had just given monsieur Roubaillet. Apparently he did, because he gave a little bow to her and said, Of course. He turned to me and said, Shall we begin, monsieur? He held out his open hand, indicating a passage to the side, and I stood and followed him. He led me around the corner to a small, draped changing room. I could hear Brill and Diane talking with low voices on the other side of the drape somewhere, with... Beverly punctuating the discussion, but I couldn't make out their words. Everything was quiet and muffled. Roubaillet stood me in the middle of the room and said, Very well, monsieur, if you'd slip out of your garments. He held a sumptuous-looking white robe up, and I stripped off my boots, pants, and shirt, laying them across the back of the chair. The undergarments as well, monsieur, he said. The canvas must be fresh. I slipped off the ship tee that I'd been wearing, and he slid the robe over my shoulders while I stripped out of my boxers from underneath. I should have been nervous, but the robe felt so luxurious against my skin. I didn't even flinch at being practically naked with this strange man in the room. Besides, I didn't want to embarrass Brill and the rest by making some kind of scene. I could still hear them talking softly and found their quiet conversation comforting in a weird way. If you'd slip into these now, monsieur, a bit of support, eh? He held a pair of briefs toward me and I slipped them on under the robe. After months of boxers, the soft cotton briefs felt a bit odd, but comforting. Now, I think we're ready to begin, he said in a considering way, if you'll stand here. And he indicated a spot on the floor, and pulled a drape open to reveal a large mirror. He came to stand behind me, and we looked at the mirror together for a moment. He was actually just a bit shorter than I was, and he stood off to the side so he could see me in the glass. He reached up in one smooth movement and slipped the robe from my shoulders, and I stood there looking into the glass, wearing only the snug briefs. So... Monsieur Ishmael Huang, who do you think you are? He asked me softly, catching my eyes in the mirror. He didn't ask the question the way my mother used to when she was angry with me, but in a kind of peculiar emphasis on the word think. I smiled. I'm just a guy, I confessed. Nothing special, but I'd like to have some decent clothes, I said to him in the mirror. He smiled and chuckled a bit when he said, Please, don't waste my time with this foolishness. You arrive at my shop with an introduction from Brichot himself, and no mere business card and all, but a full data chip and his initial on the case. You arrive in the company of not one, but three of the most delightful and strikingly beautiful women on this end of the galaxy, and you have the audacity to say to me, I'm just a guy. He pursed his lips with a little puckered smile. I think you are more than just a guy. The world was kind of receding around me, and I found myself staring at the mirror. The running had done a lot for my body in the last few months, and I still wasn't beefy across the arms and shoulders like Pip, 
The muscles in my thighs and calves were pretty well defined, not bodybuilder material, but still pretty decent, and I was surprised to see the way the light fell across my stomach. I'd never been fat in my life, but I'd never had washboard abs before, either. I ran a hand across them, watched the shadows play in the mirror. I did a half turn and looked at the way the running had shaped up my butt before I realized what I was doing and glanced at Monsieur Roubaillet. He just stood there with the robe in his hands and waited patiently. Please, Monsieur Wang, he said, you can't afford to be shy. You need to have a good look at yourself if we are to understand how you should be dressed. So I took a deep breath and looked, turning this way and that. The white cotton briefs fit perfectly, and I started to get an idea of how others might see me. Young still, beyond the cultishness of youth, but not yet at that point of full maturity. Slightly built, but definitely male. Do you like what you see, Monsieur Huang? He asked me gently. It didn't feel exactly natural standing there looking at myself in the mirror while the stranger watched me look at myself in the mirror, but it was as if that part of my mind were numbed. I knew it was weird, but the weirdness didn't seem to matter. Yes, I nodded slowly, still looking at myself in the mirror. I think I do. So, are you ready to try on clothes? he asked. Slowly, I nodded. Very well, he said, and slipped the robe back over my shoulders. This way, please. I think we're done measuring. Measuring? I asked. He nodded to the glassy sensors in the flooring. Of course, monsieur. I must know your physical dimensions, he said with a smile, just as you need to know your spiritual ones. He looked at me then and peered into my face. Yes, I think we're ready, he said thoughtfully. He led me back out to where the women were seated. It was a little disconcerting to be there in public wearing not a lot more than a robe, but it wasn't that much different than a sauna, if you didn't count Monsieur Roubaillet and his assistants, and that everybody besides me was dressed to the eye teeth. With your permission, ladies, he addressed them, we will begin. He undraped another mirror and stood me in front of it. I was afraid for a moment that he was going to whisk the robe off and leave me standing there in my briefs again, but instead he took a pair of beige slacks from a hovering assistant and assisted me in slipping them on under the robe. I felt better with pants on, but it didn't last long because now he did strip the robe off and left me standing in front of the mirror wearing only the slacks. The mirror was angled slightly, so I couldn't see the women seated just to my right in its reflection, but I could sense their eyes on me. Monsieur Roubaillet tugged the seam and smoothed the fabric over my backside in an oddly impersonal manner, as if he were dressing a doll. They looked good and fit well, but Brill summed it up when she said, Too old. Stepping back, Monsieur Roubaillet nodded and said, Yes, indeed. He reached out and plucked a different pair of slacks from a different assistant's hands, and slid the beige slacks down my legs and handed them off while he helped me into the second pair, a nicely tailored pair of twill slacks and a chocolate brown. I stood there for a moment, looking at myself barefoot and shirtless in the mirror. Beverly said, too formal. Hmm, Monsieur Roubaillet said thoughtfully, you may be right. How do you feel about denim, Monsieur Wong? he asked. Denim? I asked still contemplating the twill in the mirror, trying to decide what Beverly found formal about them. Yes, denim, what are commonly called blue jeans, Monsieur Roubaillet said. Oh, I like them very much, I said. His assistant produced a pair of jeans, and Monsieur Roubaillet helped me out of the twill and into a pair of dark blue denim jeans. They were soft as if they'd been washed about a thousand times, but they had an absolutely perfect dark blue color. 
They slithered up my legs and across my butt like they were made for me, and I felt the soft cotton hug my thighs and settle low around my hips. They had a button fly instead of a zipper, and as I struggled with the unfamiliar placement, I spotted the white cotton robe laying across the chair where Monsieur Roubaillet had placed it after I had put on the first pair of trousers. I was suddenly conscious of all the people in the room who were watching me do up my pants. I could hear what sounded like a soft whimper from the direction of the couch, but I didn't dare turn my head. I finished buttoning my jeans and stood to look at myself in the mirror, trying to ignore the flush of red on my whole head and naked chest. Roubaillet turned me this way and that so I could get a good look in the mirror, and I heard Brill say, I think those will do. Diane added, Oh, yes. After the briefest of pauses, Bev said, I don't know. Could we try on the twill again just to see? I lost it then and started laughing. They were obviously enjoying themselves watching me, and if they wanted to watch, some little imp inside me wanted to give them something to see. I turned and looked back over my shoulder in the mirror so I could see the way the denim hugged my butt, and I brushed a hand across it ever so slightly just to feel it. I think these will do nicely, I announced to the room at large, and then I turned to face them and trailed a hand down across my stomach until my thumb hooked in the waistband and my fingers just played with the buttons. Do you think they fit? I asked them. Diane repeated a breathy, oh yes. Brill cleared her throat and added, <clears throat> definitely. Bev just grinned with a very hungry looking glint in her eye and I grinned back. Monsieur Roubaillet's assistant on the other side of the couch just nodded. Her eyes were quite large and fixed on my fingers. Do you have something suitable in the way of a shirt, Monsieur Roubaillet? I asked him. From the way he was smiling, he was enjoying this as much as I was, perhaps more. I think I do, Monsieur Wong. He handed me a long-sleeved shirt and a pale pink cotton. It wasn't the smooth cotton I expected, but a richly textured Oxford cloth. Pink? I asked. Trust me, he said, few men have the ability to wear pink. You are one of them. I shrugged and slipped it on, buttoning it around me and slipping the tails into my jeans, feeling the women's eyes on me as I slid my hands down into my pants. He had me stand still for a moment while he moved around me, tugging and adjusting. He stopped in front of me and unbuttoned one extra button at the top. You can get away with this, he said softly. I turned to face my audience again, letting the fingers of my right hand slide up to the collar of the shirt and then play across the exposed upper chest where the extra button was undone. Do you think this makes me look girly? I asked them. The assistant standing behind the couch shook her head vigorously. Diane just said, girly? No. Brill said, if that's girly, I'm on the wrong side of the fence. Bev just grinned some more. He had me sit in the chair then and handed me a pair of navy socks with padded toes and heels along with a pair of low boots. The boots were an amazingly supple leather with soft café au lait color and a brushed finish that made them seem almost like smooth suede. They slipped on easily and fit perfectly. I stood in them and stepped to the center of the room. I had just a bit more heel than I normally wore, but the extra two or three centimeters made me stand a little straighter. You still need a jacket and a belt, he said, but how do you like this so far? I shook my head in admiration. These are such simple clothes, but they fit so well they seem almost elegant, I told him. Grinning, I added, but the critical audience is over there. 
I nodded at Brill, Bav, and Diane. He smiled. They seem to approve, monsieur, he said softly. I have a belt, perhaps, I said. I stepped back into the changing room and pulled the boy toy belt from my pants in the chair and returned to the mirror. It slid smoothly through the belt loops and the golden buckle with the black dragon head rode perfectly on my lower stomach. An excellent piece of workmanship, Monsieur Roubaillet said admiringly, and exactly the right touch of whimsy. Now, the jacket. He held open a coat for me to slide into. I slipped my arms into it and he pulled it up across my shoulders. Again, he surprised me with color and texture. The coat was made from a very narrow whale, lightweight corduroy in an olive green. It was very close to a neutral color, but picked up the pink in the shirt and countered it beautifully. It was double-breasted with wide lapels and a rounded collar, like the old-time sailor's peacoats. It even had big anchor-embossed black buttons. It was light enough I could wear it around the station without getting overheated, but when I pulled it closed and tried the buttons, I could feel the warmth beginning to build. If I were ever stuck on the docks, this would certainly keep me warm enough. Ladies, I asked, will this do? I displayed it for them, buttoning and unbuttoning the jacket, and even slipping it off entirely and slinging it over my shoulder to catch the effect. Monsieur Roubaillet suggested what he called a continental style, where he just draped it around my shoulders, allowing the sleeves to hang free. He also showed me how to release the cuffs on the sleeves and to fold them back a bit, allowing the shirt to show for a more casual look, but it was still very nice. Brill asked, could we see some more shirts, Monsieur Roubaillet? He'll need more than the one. But of course, madame, he said, and brought out three other shirts to try. A classic white Oxford, a turtleneck jersey in dark green that worked perfectly with the jacket, and a pullover with a simple rounded collar and five buttons down the front. I took my time trying each of them on, enjoying being watched in an odd way. Finally, Monsieur Roubaillet asked, If there's nothing else, may I have your purchases wrapped, monsieur, or will you wear them? Might I take a moment to consult with my friends, I asked. As soon as he said the word purchases, I got a very panicky feeling. I didn't know if I could afford this. What little I knew of fashion made me fear that I was in way over my head. Of course, he agreed instantly. Brill, Bev, and Diane were all sitting there with very odd expressions and looking a bit flushed. I'm sorry that took so long, I said, but what do you think of the outfit? Bev spoke first and said, It's you-ish. I thought she sounded a bit breathless. I took Brill aside and asked softly, Are you okay, Brill? You look a little flushed. No, she said with a smile that seemed shaky to me. I'm fine, really. <laughs> okay, well, um, how do I ask how much this is going to cost? I asked. I'm beginning to worry that I can't really afford this, and I don't want to look like an idiot getting back into my old clothes. You won't look like an idiot. Just ask for the statement. You can always pick a few pieces and leave the rest. He won't think twice. I nodded and turned to Diane. What do you think? Will these work? I asked, indicating the clothes. Oh, I think so, she said. If you could just slip the jacket off, though, and walk over there and back for me just once. I did as she asked, pretending not to know that they were watching my butt. She and Beverly were both nodding to each other. Oh, yes, yes, I think that works very well, she said. Very well, then, Monsieur Roubaillet, I think these will do, if I could see the statement. His assistant had a pleased little smile on her face as she presented me with a tablet displaying the accounting and then slipped back into position while I consulted with Brill, Diane, and Beverly once more. The tab was 2,208 credits. Wow, Diane said when she saw the amount. I knew it was going to be steep, but... Bev said quietly, I can loan you some if you need it, Ish. I looked to Brill. 
Well, she said, you really need to keep the jacket. It's only a killer credit and spectacular on you, she said with concern. No, I told him, the question is, does this seem like an awfully low price? I don't buy clothes, and I have no idea what a pair of jeans costs. Bev caught on first. It's about ten times what you'd pay anywhere else, she said. But you are never going to find clothes that fit that well ever again. She looked at me and added, I can help you if you're short. I grinned. Thank you, Monsieur Roubaillet, I said. This will be most satisfactory. And while Brill, Diane, and Bev looked on dumbfounded, I thumbed the bill. He led me back to the dressing room where I retrieved my tablet and loose articles. The dolphin slipped nicely into an inside pocket of the jacket. There was even a place in there for my tablet. His assistants bundled up my old clothing separately from my spare shirts and took everything back to where Brill, Bev, and Diane were standing. Are we ready, ladies? I asked. They all nodded and Monsieur Roubaillet showed me out. On the way, he handed me another data chip, this one inscribed with an ornate R on the case. Any time I can be of assistance, Monsieur Wang, he said, this will get my attention. He smiled and added softly, It's not every day my assistants get to enjoy themselves so much, Monsieur. They hope you'll return soon. Thank you, Monsieur Roubaillet, I said with a smile and a small bow. This has been an amazing experience. I tucked the case into my pocket besides the dolphin, and on the way out I took the bundle of old clothes and stuffed it down the first disposal chute I came to. Brill, Bev, and Diane were smiling at me. I can't afford the mass, I told them. Let's go out to dinner, Bev said. I feel like celebrating. As we headed to the lift, I found myself in the lead with the women walking three abreast behind me. Brill in the middle, flanked by Diane and Bev. They looked terribly pleased with themselves for some reason, almost proud. One of you'll have to cover dinner for me, I said. That was almost all I had. Oh, after this afternoon's performance, Brill said dryly, I think the least we can do is buy you dinner. Thanks for listening to Episode 9 of Half Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from the Banks of Newfoundland, an Irish jig recorded in September of 1928 by Peter James Conlon and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 License. For a website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden. Music